0: What is up, my friends? Welcome back to another episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and today I want to tell you a story. Actually, a few stories, but they all tie together. And they begin with an email that I received over the summer while we were in the throes of getting Indie Hall ready to move. And I got an email from a mailing list. And I don't subscribe to a lot of mailing lists, and the ones that I do subscribe to uh, don't always get my full attention. But there's one in particular that always gets my attention, and it's called The Listserv. Um, sounds kind of... Kind of ominous, I know. But you can check out thelistserve.com and sign up yourself. It's a super interesting kind of social experiment where people sign up for the listserv also are entered into a lottery for an opportunity to post to the listserv. So every day, a new email goes out from another subscriber to the list, and they're allowed to share essentially anything uh, that they want to share with the other folks who are on that list. So I think this attracts people who are genuinely curious and doing interesting things. Sometimes people are posting about you know, their philosophy on something or a question that they have or something that they're working on or they find interesting or challenging, a very personal story. It can be very touching. Sometimes Sometimes uh, illuminating. One email in particular caught my eye a couple of months ago from a woman named Rachel. She's based in Austin, Texas, but was writing about how she was heading to Melbourne, Australia for postgraduate work where she was going to be studying how you could design built space, the built environment, to have a positive impact on teaching and learning in schools. And you can imagine, if you've been listening to this show before, why that might have caught my eye. Now, another cool thing about the Listserv is you're getting these emails from strangers all over the world With just enough context to know that they were curious enough to listen to other people's emails as well. And you get their email address. And so for the first time, after having received hundreds, maybe thousands of listserv emails over the years, I replied to my first one, to this woman, Rachel. And I said, you know, my background's in co-working. I've been running a co-working space uh, since before it came a part of the major zeitgeist. I'm interested in a lot of the same things that you are in terms of how we can use the built environment to influence how people interact with each other. And I think our overlap is that sort of more holistic approach. Uh, If you're not willing to adapt the culture, space changes don't just not help. Sometimes they can hurt. So, you know, I don't actually have a specific ask for you. I just wanted to say hi and introduce myself. And it was this very cool sort of serendipitous way to reach out to a stranger who I knew I had something in common with. And she immediately responded. And Rachel, if you're out there uh, listening to this story, I hope uh, I can express to you how much joy your response brought me. She showed videos and examples from Indie Hall to her clients before, these clients who build schools and learning environments. She's actually used Indie Hall as an example. So Rachel, uh, that really, really made my day. But the reason that I wanted to bring up this story and this connection was because Rachel asked me a really interesting question. And she said that back in episode 20, which you can go back and listen to after this episode or or you can pause now, go back and listen to it and then come back. But back in episode 20, I talked about how corporate offices can borrow culture ideas from Indie Hall, uh, even if they don't necessarily have an open office or they're not doing hot desking or things like that. And Rachel asked me if I thought that those things, is a collaborative culture really possible? Are there elements of space that are non negotiable. You know, she's coming from an architectural perspective where space design matters. And maybe asking the question, well, does it matter as much as I think it does? And I've been sitting on this email for literally a week, super excited to sit down and record this answer because I've been thinking about an experience that I had one year ago, almost to the week where Sam and I went to the Coworking Canada conference. uh, And we did a sort of recap episode about that as well. We'll link to that in the show notes. But one of the really interesting experiences that I had at that conference specifically was going on a tour of a couple of different co-housing communities. Now, if you've never been to a co-working industry conference before, I encourage you to try. Uh, If travel's a problem for you, you should look out for the People at Work Summit, which we're going to be doing again next spring. But the in-person conferences, one of the elements that I think makes them very fun for a lot of folks who don't get to tour co-working spaces very often is to go and tour that local city's coworking space scene and see some examples of how people are creating built-in environments for people to work together. Now, here's where I've gotta be honest with you, is I don't generally go on these tours. I've been on lots of them in the past, and I visit and work with coworking spaces all over the world. Unless I have a very specific reason to go to a very specific co-working space, I'm kind of used to seeing the same patterns play out over and over and over. And it's been a while since I've seen or learned something remarkable and new on one of these co-working space tours. Not saying you shouldn't go, but my point is is once you've toured a handful of co-working spaces, there's a pretty good chance you're going to stop seeing really remarkably new things. However... The organizers of the Coworking Canada Conference did something very interesting, and they created this co-housing, co-living tour, and that's something that's on the fringe of my interests, it's something that I wanted to see and something I hadn't had a chance to experience before. And so I signed up for that. And I went on this tour with a handful of friends and a handful of strangers, which is always a fun part of these experiences, meeting new people as you tour around a city, and it turned out that we were going to two different co-housing communities And I want to describe them a little bit to you, and then I'll explain how this ties back to Rachel's story about the importance of the built space for community building. So the first co-housing, co-living tour that we went on was a... 100-year-old co-op called the Bain Co-op. And if you can imagine a neighborhood that was developed in the early 1900s by an architect who came over from, I believe, the Netherlands, just outside of Toronto, um, sort of in in the near suburbs of Toronto, and designed an intentional community from the ground up with all of the elements that you could imagine communal living in a urban suburban sort of fringe neighborhoods so you've got sort of urban density but enough space for yards you've got houses where the front yards sort of wrap around each other so if the kids are playing in front of the house they're actually playing in front of multiple houses front yards the parents can watch them from the second story kitchens the Co-op infrastructure, the fact that the residents actually owned the homes as well as sort of the clubhouse, the shared spaces, also lent to a communal experience. And this was sort of like the textbook tick-the-boxes Community space design, like if you were doing your grad student work or your research on communal spaces, this is the kind of place you would tour, take notes, and figure out what you could borrow from. And there was a very interesting part. I would actually say the most interesting part of this was the fact that somewhere in the 70s or so, the Bain Co-op actually became privatized. Sort of by accident, I understand, where uh, a single buyer, a real estate developer, was buying units one by one by one, and lo and behold, they ended up owning some majority, essentially turned it into a, a local I don't want to call it a slum. Uh, It wasn't that aggressive, but they definitely took all of the elements that made it great. The maintenance quality dropped off. The community buy-in dropped off. And it wasn't until the late 90s that the community banded together, convinced the city of Toronto to buy the Bain Co-op back from this real estate developer while they restructured the Co-op and re-implemented the Co-op. So there is a very interesting story in the history of the Bain co op, that I think is much more interesting than the built infrastructure of it, though the built infrastructure is indicative of sort of designed, built, intentional community spaces. So I left there going, all right, well, I don't really have personal aspirations of designing community space at neighborhood scale like that, where it's all sort of all part of a neighborhood. Almost reminded me of the way um, like suburban residential developments are built, right? Where, you know, you drive into an entrance and you're in it, and then you, you, you enter it and you leave it. Real neighborhoods don't really work that way. They don't have such clearly defined boundaries where this did, and actually, frankly, that turns me off. But, that wasn't the most exciting part. The most exciting part was the second tour. And it was a tour of a place. We'll call it a place for the sake of conversation. But it was truly a tour of the Liberty Village Residents Association. And and uh, the LVRA simply, it's about connecting you to your neighbors. It's about social cohesion. It's about making the village as friendly and neighborly a place as we possibly can. that makes us all a whole bunch happier and a whole bunch safer. And this is where things get back to Rachel's question about, does the built space matter? Or are there deal breakers? And I want to describe to you what I experienced as I cruised into this neighborhood, again, just on the outskirts of Toronto. And this is a neighborhood where uh, previously, I'm imagining a couple of decades ago, up until a couple of decades ago, there was a fair bit of local industry. So you had warehouses, manufacturing, some sort of probably trucking, bringing equipment and supplies in and out. And as those industries die off, those areas often are left to rot. Some places in the parts of the world where, where I live in Philadelphia um pennsylvania of the rust belt of america those industrial areas have been left to rot in some cases far too long because people expected and hoped for those industries to come back but in some places and this is one of them people got smart and they said let's go in and redevelop it let's buy up the land let's turn it into something useful and active and alive now and this is one of those cases where that effort goes horribly horribly wrong When I walked into Liberty Village, which is a collection of apartment buildings, condo buildings more specifically, towers, we're talking 20 to 30 story or taller towers lining the streets. You're in Toronto, so if you can imagine what the winters are like while you're trying to walk the street between these horribly oppressive, some of the ugliest architecture I've ever seen, these ugly fronts, the cold wind would cut through you, this is In every sense of the term, the opposite of what I think of when I think of community experience. These buildings don't do anything to invite people to come together. In fact, in many cases, they actively divide them. Unless you're a resident of a building, you can't enter that building without the permission of another resident. They're heavily guarded, access control. There is a common courtyard between them, but you can imagine what that is like and how that's used when the buildings that surround it aren't inviting or interactive at all. So why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about this so much? Well, we got a tour from a guy named Todd Hoffley who is the founder of the Liberty Village Residents Association. Not the founder of any of these buildings. In fact, he was a resident of one of the buildings. He was a condo owner and he bought a condo uh, and realized that he was missing something and it was that community connection. Actually, these buildings so designed to divide were doing their job. And Todd and a handful of other neighbors thought to themselves, does it really need to be that way? And they started organizing amongst themselves. So what's happening in Liberty Village is really cool. And it's not happening anywhere else. And I think we really need to take advantage of this. But the upshot is just go say hi to your neighbors. Say hi to me when you see me walking along the street. Don't punch me for something I might have said on the Facebook group. But say hi. I don't bite. And neither do the rest of your neighbors. Say hi when you walk down the street because that's what this is all about. It's very, very simple. Again, in spite of the built infrastructure and they started using tools like facebook groups and at first it was just one building and people coming together. And it wasn't people coming together necessarily to make the building better, but coming together to improve each other's lives. If somebody was homesick from work, they would post, hey, I'm homesick from work. Does anybody have any movie recommendations that I can watch? And somebody would not only recommend movies, but offer to drop by with some DVDs. Those kinds of interactions. And as Todd is telling me this story, I'm realizing how familiar this sounds to the underpinnings of what has made Indy Hall and many co-working spaces that I know so successful. Not that the built infrastructure is a certain way, but that people come together in a certain way to support one another, to improve the experience for one another. And through a number of individual smaller steps, and I would love to bring Todd on the show to describe this story at some point in the near future, but I wanted to answer Rachel's question because it's been on my mind for the last week. The fact that Todd organized his neighbors Around connecting with each other, around helping each other, around making the living experience better than it would have been if they hadn't done anything. And in this particular case, in spite of the built infrastructure, it showed me in the clearest example I've ever seen how there are no deal breakers when it comes to the built infrastructure. Now, can the built infrastructure help? Absolutely. Could they have removed certain elements of the design of the building or changed certain elements of the design of these buildings to Encourage community interactions? Absolutely. But they still very likely would not have happened had there not been somebody like Todd to guide and sort of coach people to interact in a certain way. And at this point, the Liberty Village Residents Association is such a force that it has become a standalone nonprofit. They collect dues not from the individual residents but from the building. So the buildings represent their residents and actually offer membership to the LVRA as a benefit of living in the building and paying your condo fees. So effectively as a resident, you are paying them, but you don't pay them directly. This streamlines the nonprofit and allows the nonprofit to put all of its focus on doing what that nonprofit is there for, which is bringing the neighbors together. And they do social events. I remember them talking about like a singles mixer and they do business events and they bring together members of the business community to share what's going on, to make people aware of the businesses that are happening. There are local business sponsors, but they're used more as a way to get people involved in the community than to pitch and hawk services. This is the best example of how to involve sponsors. I talked about that in past episodes of the Coworking Weekly Show. My favorite part about this entire story is that there are people in other neighborhoods in Toronto. Literally, they do not even live in this part of the city where these buildings were built to isolate and separate. And their members and their active contributors to the Liberty Village Residents Association online community, their Facebook groups. Because the community vibe, the sense of camaraderie and togetherness and support for one another is greater there than it is in their own neighborhood where maybe things seem to be built more for neighborhood. But people don't actually look after each other the way Todd and his crew have led each other to. So I think this is an incredible story. It was so moving to hear how the leadership of one person could activate a group of people to come together to make things better than they w- than they could have on their own. That's what This is all about. Could the buildings have been designed differently? Once they've been built, it's pretty hard to change them. Possible, but unlikely. And most importantly, not necessary. So, are there deal breakers? You may choose for things to be deal breakers. But in terms of the fundamental design patterns of community building, I think it's more important to look at the tools around you and say, well, what can we create that we couldn't create otherwise? Even if the building's not perfect, what can we do together to make the experience better? Even if the building's not on board. And in this particular case, the building got on board because there was already momentum in place. So an interesting story. Hopefully a little bit of a mind bender for you. And for Rachel, if you uh, got a chance to listen to this episode, I hope this answered your question. And I would love to hear from some of you out there who have maybe lived or worked in places where the building was maybe intentionally designed to be isolating, to create silos. I think of schools as places where silos are so often created, but individuals and groups of people come together, sometimes intentionally, sometimes by happenstance to subvert that built infrastructure. How can you subvert the built infrastructure that you've been provided or maybe that you even chose to use? That's the question that I think you should be asking. So I hope this lesson was interesting to you. I hope the stories are interesting to you. If you're ever in Toronto, check out the Liberty Village Residents Association. You can also look them up on Google. While their Facebook groups are private, you need to be approved to join them by a member of the Residents Association. There's a lot of really interesting stuff, some stories out there about them. They're worth checking out. Uh, And Todd, if this finds its way to you, I'd love to have you on the show. Uh, I hope you have a great week and keep on doing your community thing.